Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Hagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David! I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. We're recording this, by the way, the day after Burns Night. Did you celebrate Burns Night last night? I did not. How can I deny the David? Dave, David, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess something. I have uh, participated in Burns Nights, um, both in Scotland and in the United States. I participated in virtual Burns Nights in the past couple of years in my capacity representing the university abroad. I don't really like Burns's poetry. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, and and, and listeners, if, if Frank doesn't have his job <laughs> or is lynched by a mob, the <laughs> time you you know, button I want to make it clear that I actually think having a national holiday based on a poet and and a, and a poet's poetry is a great idea. I like the ceremony around a Burns supper. It's Burns himself or Burns's work itself that leaves me a little flat. Okay, so you're just not a fan. I'm not a fan. Yeah, okay, I'm not so, a fan. And that's, are you a fan of Burns? I, I can't honestly say I've studied Burns sufficiently enough to have a definitive opinion one way or the other. I can give you an immortal memory that's pretty no, amusing I'm, if I need to and everything much, else. Yeah. I've done all that for work and I, and, and I put on my tartan who, trees. Who would the American version of Burns be if there was an American holiday that was devoted to a poet? Good question. Uh, I mean, 19th century, Walt Whitman, but Walt Whitman is hard going too. Yeah, um, well, a Walt Whitman day could lead to some interesting Emily Dickinson. Yeah, um, that'd be kind of depressing. But Bob okay. Dylan. We'll just table that right there. <laughs> Move on to other things. Um, we should have Bob Dylan. Dylan night. I'd have no idea what we'd eat. Well, he's from you know Minnesota, Minnesota. Minnesota so I, I, uh, Lutefisk or you know something. I, I don't know. Lutefisk is terrible. Anyway, all right. This isn't even... A, well, we, are, we do want to talk about cold places, so Minnesota's a transition. But I only bring this up to say that we are both not hungover from Burns Night last night, so that's good. We don't have that as an excuse for what follows. So the topic today is derived, of course, from the headlines. The headlines uh, over the past several weeks have been massing Russian troops on the border of the Ukraine, which uh, appear to be uh, poised for an imminent invasion of the part of Ukraine that isn't already occupied by... Uh, Russian forces, uh, and so we thought we'd try to make sense of U.S.-Russian relations, both to make sense at this particular moment, but also over the past 200-plus years. And I've, obviously there's some huge antecedents for this moment in the 20th century with the Cold War, but we thought we'd be more fun and challenging to focus on on the other parts of U.S.-Russian relations, focusing uh, before the Cold War and, and after the Cold War, uh, just, just to make our lives a bit challenging. Yeah, we want to do a deep cut here. A and, deep and cut. So, so, uh, we are not sort of scholars of strategy or international relations, and so we're not necessarily approaching this from... We should have a list of the things we're not scholars of. Huge. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, so this is another area where we want to demonstrate our encyclopedic ignorance on. Uh, I should say that when I suggested this topic to you a few days ago, mm. you pointed out to me that we've done an episode on Russia in the past, and I pointed out to you uh, that I have no memory of this. <laughs> now, we're, what is this, episode 198 or 199? We're almost in to 200. Yes. Um, so, long-time <laughs> listeners, you've probably also forgotten that episode, but that's okay, too. So, I apologize if uh, what we're saying is, is repetitive and or if it contradicts what we've said earlier. Now, you say we have no expertise, but you have some expertise in as much as you were a Soviet studies major in college for a period of time. Now... 
how did you end up as a Soviet studies major, and 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 how did you end up not doing that as a career choice? Okay, uh, a couple of things. So yes, and, and Soviet studies, not Russian studies, which dates me, uh, and and. Yeah, listeners will know that I'm a little bit older than David. Uh, and so I went to college in the mid-1980s, graduated uh, with my first degree in 1987. So I was in college from sort of 83 to 87. <laughs> David's giving a slightly snotty look. He's thinking, wow, he's really older than me. <laughs> um, I was in fifth grade then, so it's yeah, Okay, great. That's great. <laughs> um, and, and I... At that time, Russian the Soviet American relations was a big deal. The Cold War was yeah, on yeah. something, you know, and uh, we didn't know it was about to end. So, I mean, this was about, there were lots of people who were studying. There was Soviet studies was a big field then. It was a big field. Area studies was a big field. Area studies itself in, in the history of American higher education is actually an artifact of the Cold War. Mm. Um, and I was an undergraduate, and I, and I for a brief period of time. When I started as an undergraduate, I, I intended to be a Soviet studies major. Listeners who are familiar with U.S. higher education, especially in liberal arts colleges, will know you can change your major with some frequency, unlike here in the U.K. where we're, we're stuck in more rigid tracks. Uh, and I fully intended to do this and thought maybe I'll have a career as a diplomat or something like that. Again, listeners will know how undiplomatic I am and how ill-suited I would be for that. Uh, however, a couple of things happened. So, so I took things. I took some great courses I really enjoyed. 19th century Russian literature, uh, Soviet film course, which was a lot of fun. My big problem was Russian itself. I ah. just don't... You know, I studied Russian and I tried really, really hard. And I made good friends in my Russian class, friends who I still have. But Russian... Uh, I am not a gifted linguist and Russian is not an easy lift uh, for anyone, for any Anglophone, but certainly uh, if you're not great at languages. It helped me, though, because a few years ago, about, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I was in Russia. I went to, to, to Moscow and St. Petersburg for uh, briefly to attend a conference, and I was able to read the signs and make things out. So, so it did, although the, you could find the bathroom. That so that's time good. of that's... studying Russian did help me in, in that regard, so I could at least read things. Uh, but but Russian was my downfall. Then I, I went back to my, my true love, which was history anyway. And I will say that by the early 90s, at the, as the Cold War ended, I thought, well, good thing I didn't become a Soviet studies major. That would have been a waste of time. What would the career prospects have been? Well, if there's one thing we've learned over the subsequent 30 years, it's actually Russia's still important, as Mitt yeah. Romney attempted to remind us in 2012. Uh, and, and so, but it was a path not taken for me, and that was fine in the end. Um, so, so, yes, that's okay. a little bit of autobiography there. So, but but I, I, I don't, I certainly don't regret it. Uh, you know, studying anything is useful. And studying, la I'm a big fan of people studying languages. I just wish I were better at it. Well, you and me both. You're yeah. much more lingu linguistically talented than I am. But, you know, the, 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 the moment that you're describing, you know, when, when understanding the Soviet Union was, was vitally important, you know, for, for obviously political reasons, geopolitical reasons, military reasons, but also sort of culturally was you know, an important, you know, it was both hard to understand the Soviet Union. Americans had a difficult time understanding what happened behind the Iron Curtain, but we had a desire to. And I think the, your degree program sort of speaks to that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think, um, you know, there was a danger in the 1980s or, uh, you know, a real danger. The danger is still with us, but we've kind of 
uh, forgotten about it, of nuclear war. You know, mm. where you thought, oh, this could really happen. I mean, it was probably less pronounced in the 80s than it was in the 60s, but, you know, the film The Day After came out then. I mean, there was a real, uh, there was a lot of tension with regard to the Cold War mm. about American missiles in Europe and all kinds of things like that. I mean, this stuff was in the news all the time. Mm. And for listeners who've watched The Americans, for example, which is a brilliant program because it captures the kind of zeitgeist of the 1980s really well. Mm. As somebody who lived through that period and was a bit older than you, I wasn't in fifth grade, um, you know, it, it, it really resonates. I actually quite like the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a weird way. Um, you know, th that, that program, for example, kind of captures that moment when... You know, superpower conflict was a real thing and a real threat. Now, we're living in an age, I think we're, we're living, I was just reading in Foreign Affairs recently about what, what they're calling Cold War II, which is the, the relationship between the United, the emerging relationship between the United States and China mm. at the moment. But there are a lot of resonances between the two. So Right. So let's talk about, about what people in the revolutionary era thought about Russia what, what did what thoughts did Jefferson Jefferson had thoughts on everything what did he think about Jefferson Russia? has thoughts about everything so, so in the revolutionary era itself Russia doesn't play that big a role except in so far as uh, the British approach Russia they approached Catherine the Great during the war of independence to hire mercenaries to hire Russian mercenaries to fight in America, they don't. So it's like get Hessians, them. but they want Russians. That's right. Okay. But and they don't get them, so they go to they go to Germany instead, and they get the Hessians. Uh, and Russia also supports the League of Armed Neutrality that's created in 1780, which is basically Baltic powers that is neutral in the war, but kind of freezing Britain out of trade in the Baltic, which sort of helps the American rebels. But Russia's not that important in the revolution. Why, why did Why did Catherine the Great say say no deal with 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 the British? She had other things to do. She was fighting the Turks. Turks okay, yeah, other uses for the soldiers. Yeah, okay. She wasn't that interested. Um, <laughs> and but Russia's a presence in North America then, of course, because it's a Russian American company. There's a, there's a there's Russian colonization in what is today Alaska and the Pacific Coast, going down as far as California. So there's a Russian presence in North America during that period. But Russia's pretty peripheral to the story of the American Revolution. However, Russia is important. So you're right, Jefferson. Jefferson's got an opinion about everything. In 1804, um, the American consul in St. Petersburg, a guy named Levitt Harris, sends Jefferson a bust of the new czar Alexander I. Now, Alexander I was the grandson of Catherine the Great. He'd become czar in 1801, at approximately the same time that Jefferson became president of the United States. He's, he's much younger than Jefferson. He's, he's, uh, in his, uh, he was born in 19, uh, sorry, 1777, not 1977. Um, and so he's in his mid-twenties at this point. Be pro well, his father, Paul, was was murdered. Um, and so, so Alexander I becomes czar because of the murder of his father, which Alexander I may or may not have been involved in. There's some okay, good. So, so this guy, court politics he's seems... the czar of Russia. So he's an, he's an authoritarian, he's an autocrat. He may or may not have murdered his father to become czar of Russia. Seems like a nice guy. He's not Jeff. You wouldn't think he's Jefferson's kind of guy. But Levitt Harris sends Jefferson a bust of Alexander I. And Jefferson writes back to Harris. He says, I don't normally accept gifts unless they're books. Which is an interesting Being comment. comment. Okay. <laughs> and something we could sympathize with. Yes, yeah. um, but I'm making an exception because this guy is so important and so interesting. And... Uh, 
um, such an important figure. And Jefferson, it's not a major preoccupation of Jefferson, but I, for, for some something I was writing a few years ago, I looked at this. There are references to Alexander I throughout Jefferson's writings. They died approximately at the same time. I think Alexander I died in 1825. Jefferson dies in 1826. And he's always complimentary about him. In part, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is he credits Alexander I with defeating Napoleon. And he does this because he says Napoleon's a terrible tyrant, he has to be defeated, etc., etc. He's a great beast. He says some unflattering things about Napoleon, but he doesn't want to give George III the credit and the British the credit for defeating Napoleon. So in terms of the Napoleonic Wars, hmm. he say, he wants to he gives the lion's share of the credit to Russia rather than Britain, because basically his Anglophobia is so strong that he sees he sees Alexander as the alternative to that. And so this bust of Alexander I, when he when he mounts it in Monticello, it's in the parlor and it's over the door. It's at one side of the door. At the other side of the door is a bust of Napoleon. So they're there is kind of in contrast to each other. And Alexander represents the man who he's the man who defeated Napoleon. So where do you get the bust of Napoleon from? Oh, he bought it. Okay. Yeah, he just wants to have it. He yeah, yeah. to have well, matching set. Here. He well, and he wants Monticello to be a museum, you know. So he and so he's got all kinds of stuff there. No, so, so, it's so, for cocktail but, parties. He's like, look, I've got these two guys. All no, right, it's meant right. to be instructive too. Dude, so you look there and you say, "There's Napoleon." Boo! Ooh. Oh, and Alexander's the good guy. But it's not just that. He praises Alexander the first as being an enlightened despot, and we would think, "Oh, enlightened despotism must be bad." Better than unenlightened despotism. Well, yes, 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 yes. That that's it exactly. And so Jefferson's drawing a distinction between he, he's very uncomplimentary. He writes there's a wonderful passage in his writings uh, where he talks about Alexander, but he, it's preceded by a long paragraph about what's wrong with every single monarch in Europe, how they're all imbeciles or inbred, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he says, but Alexander, because this dynasty is not very old, hasn't degenerated yet, and he benefited because Catherine the Great was also an enlightened an enlightened despot and she raised her grandson to be enlightened and this is what Russia needs because Russia in Jefferson's way of thinking is not at the same stage of development as say the United States he subscribes to the kind of stadial theory of mm -hmm. history that comes out of the Scottish Enlightenment that countries go through stages and civilizations go through stages of development Russia's not ready for democracy in Jefferson's thinking. And therefore, rather than have a benighted autocrat, you need an enlightened autocrat. And Alexander I is the man to improve education in Russia and to improve Russia and lift Russians up so that someday they will be ready for democracy and republican self-government. So that's, that's, that's his thinking. So on one hand, it's just, well, I'm not giving George III credit for anything. I mean, if anybody's an enlightened monarch, it's probably George III. But we're not giving him credit. We're not giving Britain credit for any of this. So it's it's just well, this is our team, and we're you know this these the Russians beat Napoleon. That's they're good. But there's something more there. There's this kind of whole kind of conceptual approach to history that comes out of the Enlightenment, particularly the Scottish Enlightenment, that influences his thinking, and he sees Alexander the First as a kind of important transitional figure in helping to bring Russia down the road to democracy. You're giving me a kind well, of physical it's, look. It's, it's just fascinating because, I mean, just looking later at the 19th century, one of the things that seems to be going on is the United States tends to look at Russia 
in this interesting light because it says it's not Britain. And Russia, on the other hand, looks at the United States and seems to... What it likes about the United States is that it's also not Britain. And there's there's this adversarial... You know, Britain has this interesting uh, common adversarial position for in their in their relationship especially in the first half of the 19th century yeah and 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 we see this i, I think that's right and the other thing that they have in common is first of all you're right let's not forget how important britain is in the 19th century yes, as a global yeah. power i mean it's everywhere you know the, the, and the, both and britain fight, fights wars against both russia and the united states right and and so it's seen as an adversary and and russia and the United States in the 19th century are both growing continental powers that in some way, shape, or form, Britain interprets as an adversary, or as adversaries, I should say, but each of them, viewing Britain as an adversary, see the other as a possible ally. Now, they don't formally ally. That that, that, that never happens, and I know yeah. you're going to speak in a few minutes about their most famous mm. diplomatic encounter, but there's a sense in which these two countries, they're both polyglot, they're both large, they're continental, they're, you know, the, the United States is, they're both maritime powers, but they're both also continental powers, they're land powers, they have a lot in common. And, and the, the person who gave articulation to this uh, best probably in the early period is Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French aristocrat who studied America and wrote so insightfully about democracy in America. And he concludes the first two volumes of Democracy in America with a kind of, with a quote that often gets cited, and I remember reading it in my Soviet studies courses back in the day. Um, so long ago, Tadokville lectured us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he wrote in 1835, Today there are two great peoples on earth who, starting from different points, seem to advance toward the same goal. These are the Russians and the Anglo-Americans. All other people seem to have almost reached the limits drawn by nature and have nothing more to do except maintain themselves. But these two are growing. He adds, Russia is of all the nations of the old world the one whose population is increasing most rapidly. The American struggles against obstacles that nature opposes to him. The Russian is grappling with men. The one combats the wilderness and barbarism, and here we see de Tocqueville's uh, ethnocentrism uh, with regard to the United States. The other, civilization clothed in all its arms. Consequently, the conquests of the American are made with the farmer's plow and those of the Russian with the soldier's sword. To reach his goal, the first relies on personal interest and without directing them allows the strength and reason of individuals to operate. The second, in a way, concentrates all power of society in one man. To some extent, de Tocqueville's saying what Jefferson was saying. That, you know, there, there are kind of national attributes that might be a product of geography, and these find expression in government. But what is interested there, what is interesting to me in that quote is that de Tocqueville sees in, in, in Russian expansion to the east, and this is the, the age when Russia is expanding and, and colonizing Siberia and, the, and, and East Asia, or it, it, the Russian Far East, something comparable to what's going on in the United States Contemporary, sometimes called manifest destiny, others, you know, but we see the, the, the rapid expansion of the United well, States at the same time. One of the things that's happening during that time is that Russia is actually inviting lots of American engineers to come visit Russia because they see the development of American railroads in the West. They're looking at the construction of canals, the Erie Canal, all the other canals that are built. They're looking at American manufacturing, especially of of firearms, and they're very interested. They, they you know, the the Colt forty five, the Smith and Wesson, they're very interested in that in the nineteenth century. 
and they invite lots of Americans over to help them engineer their railroads or to give them ideas about, you know, how to replicate the, the American transportation revolution on a Russian landscape on the supposition that they have both have this enormous, you know, area that they want to expand into and see the technologies as ways to do it. They start to brand things as American in Russia and, and that becomes a sort of a, a positive selling point for, for commercial goods. Uh, so there is a, yeah, but there is an actual commerce of ideas going on, even if there isn't a huge amount of trade going on between Russia and the United States. Yeah, that's right. And and Americans um, are reading Russians. So the great Russian novelists, but but uh, you know Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, but especially Tolstoy, mm. are pretty widely read in the United States by the late nineteenth century. They're being translated and being read. Um, we see. I mean, apropos of. Um, Burns night, what we've got, you know, the, the, the Russian, the, if you asked a Russian that, there'd be no question who the answer is, it would be Pushkin. No, it should be. Um, and, and Americans are starting to read Pushkin, so there's an engagement at some level with uh, Russia, at least through translation as well, and, there, there, and we'll see at the end of the century there's actually a transit of people as well. But your point is a good one, just as Americans in the 1790s and 1810s are, are seeking to um, encourage British industrialists and artisans and engineers to come to America and share their knowledge. We see a similar transit a little bit later with Russia. And Russia, like the United States, Russia is often, like the Confederacy, David, often portrayed as backwards in terms mm. of uh, industrial production and things like this. It's not true. Like, the, you know, actually, okay, by comparison with the northern United States and Western, Northwest Britain yeah. and parts of northern France and Belgium, sure, it's relatively far behind. But in global terms, Russia is actually a pretty rapidly industrial industrializing power in the nineteenth century. Again, something it shares in common with the United States. So I think there are a lot of there are some important commonalities. Yeah. There's a great Russian historian in the late nineteenth century named Vasily Kluchevsky, who actually writes about this. Kluchevsky's I, I, as I said to you before we started we started recording, he's a little bit like the he's the Russian answer to Frederick Jackson Turner. Um, he's a fellow of the Russian Academy. He's a very popular lecturer at Moscow State University, and he tries to put out big theories explaining Russian development. He's the greatest Russian historian, probably certainly of the nineteenth century and probably pre-Soviet, uh, and he, he doesn't write in the Marxist tradition. And hmm. Kluchevsky thinks that the settlement of the Far East it helps is really important as far as. Ex explaining Russia and Russian development in the same way that Frederick Jackson Turner at approximately the same time is making the same argument about the American West. That's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that's clear is the United States, even if it's you know not the top of their list in terms of, of diplomatic priorities, they place Russia very high on the list of, of, of you know diplomatic postings. If you look at who they appoint as ambassadors, in the, especially in the first half of the 19th century, uh, you know, they appoint both John Quincy Adams, who was the foremost foreign policy thinker in the United States. He's an ambassador to Russia. James Buchanan, who isn't a great president, but was, you know, a very prominent um, you know, pre-war Democrat. He was an ambassador to Russia. You know, and I think and a bunch of if you look at the other names, um, you know, they're they're pretty prominent political positions, which speaks to the sort of place that uh, Russia had in the American mind in the 19th century. Well, Russia is a great power in the nineteenth yeah. century, you know, and, and that posting is important. It's you know, the most important posting is probably London. Yeah, uh, but Russia, it's in the top ten. It's definitely in the top ten. It's definitely in the top ten, uh, and it and it's it 
then is now isn't a glamour posting. You know, it's not some place. In fact, John Quincy Adams thinks it's really cold. <laughs> and, and it is. <laughs> I was thinking that's not an opinion. <laughs> yes, you're right. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, but but it's not a place you send. Uh, I mean, 19th century ambassadors aren't donors the way they are today. Mm. You know, guys who own car dealerships. Um, <laughs> but, 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 or football teams. Uh, but it's it's a place you send real diplomats. Mm. And it, because it's actually, it's it's an important place strategically. And it's a tough posting. It's a tough, you know, and John Quincy Adams, of course, that figures in the election. Is it, is it 1828 or 1824 when, when, when um, Adams is called a pimp for the Tsar of Russia by Andrew Jackson? Oh, I don't remember. That's a good question. Well, anyway, it's so one of his one of those elections. Uh, he, he's he's one of those bitter elections between Jackson and, and, and Adams. He's called the, a pimp for the Tsar of Russia. Well, you know, Adams helps negotiate a, a treaty with Russia about that time. You know, to where Russia gives up its claim to the the, the most southerly of its uh, North American claims. So it had, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it had not only Alaska but a whole series of of, of very very small settlements going all the way down to basically San Francisco, and they signed a treaty to give up those more southerly claims, and that's sort of part and parcel of a whole series of treaties that, that Quincy Adams is is engaging in to try to settle the boundaries or at least solidify somewhat the boundaries of the United States, whether that's treaties with, with Britain, treaties with, with uh, Spain uh, to help, you know, firm up the, the, those boundaries. Um, that being, you know, all these things being said about, about the American interest in Russia and Russian interest in, in, in America, Amer- a lot of Americans didn't look very fondly at Russia, or, or you know, weren't weren't as enamored with this enlightened despotism as 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 Jefferson may have been. Well, let's face it, enlightened despotism is a tough sell. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, one of the more fascinating places for me to see that there's this really interesting letter from from Abraham Lincoln uh, to a friend of his in in 1855, and for context. Um, so this is five years plus before he's president. Um, Lincoln had been a, a Whig his his whole life. The Whig party has started to fall apart or has basically fallen apart. The Republican party is is hasn't really been established yet in a meaningful way. It's sort of started to. Uh, and Lincoln's trying to figure out his new home politically. And one of the new parties that's emerging is this party called the Know Nothing Party or the American Party, which is an anti-immigrant party. And he says this to his to his friend. I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we begin by declaring all men are created equal. That's your guy. Now we begin to practically read all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get in control, be all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. And so, I mean, in some ways he's kind of agreeing with Jefferson. It's like, this is despotism, but at least they're honest about what kind of despotism it is, or at least they're trying to be. Um, 
And I think that's sort of a fascinating sort of supposition about you know what Russia looked like to people like Lincoln. It was, you know, just a very different way of perceiving the world. Well, I th- I think there's a couple things, David. I think there's a kind of caricature Russia where Russia is a shorthand mm. for despotism yes. and backwardness for 19th century Americans um, to some extent. So I think that that might be a place. So that might not be as much a comment on Russia as a comment on the Know Nothing Party. Oh, um, to be sure, right? Uh, Lincoln's uh, most of the right. comment. But, but, but what also strikes me about that, especially uh, it's interesting given that it's Lincoln, one of the characteristics of Russia in the 19th century in this period is, of course, serfdom. Another thing that Russia and America have in common, yeah. the United States have in common in the first half of the 19th century is a massive population of unfree laborers. Um, and, and serfdom is abolished in Russia in the early 1860s Jeez. at approximately the same Impact. time as slavery is abolished in the United States. And, and, and so that's another parallel. Another visitor of that, of that um, generation, or slightly younger, who, who visited Russia famously at this point was Mark Twain. So Mark Twain visited Russia. If you read The Innocents Abroad, which is possibly my favorite Twain book, because uh, it's very funny, and it says he goes on this long international travel in, in 1867. Uh, with a group, it's kind of the first kind of a American tourist group, mm. uh, and they travel all over. They go to Europe and the Middle East, and then they it, it's they're on a basically a it's not a cruise ship, but they're on a ship. They go to the Black Sea, and so they visit Russia. They visit Odessa in Crimea, or they visit the Russian Empire, Odessa and Sebastopol, and so on. And Twain meets the Tsar in eighteen sixty seven or so. Mm. And he famously says, yeah, he was very impressive and it's amazing because this guy controls, you know, one sixth of the world and people, he's got everybody, you know, um, you know, would jump at his command, but he's a fairly ordinary guy. And he says, I wish I stole his jacket because really when you meet somebody famous, you should definitely take something, <laughs> which given that he would achieve fame as a become a global celebrity himself within the yeah, coming gonna, decades. Someone's going to steal his jacket. <laughs> yes, he might have moved away from that. Uh, he didn't remain um, a huge fan of, of the, the czars, though, because in 1905, I believe it is, he writes, uh, with Twain, you never know what to believe, but he writes, you know, nobody dares say it, but it would be good if somebody assassinated the Russian royal family. Um, Turns out well, somebody <laughs> may have read that. Indeed. Happens, so to remember that happening. Um, and and so, so, so we have this kind of fascination with Russia um, in the late 19th century. Yeah, but so, a decade before, you know, uh, Twain's trip, there, there's, you know, the Crimean War, I think, is an interesting part about yeah, the U.S.-Russian uh, relations. And, and it, it seems, obviously, the Crimea seems particularly pressing given where we are at the moment. Because um, the American press, you know, I think you know, the Crimean War is a war that is largely i think been forgotten now or at least in by many people but was a really major conflict in the middle of the 19th century um it, which posed britain france and the ottomans on one side and russia on on the other in which russia doesn't do very well but actually a lot of people don't do very well because it's an extraordinarily bloody war um it anticipates your civil war, war well in, in many ways right in terms of that kind of uh, mechanization of carnage and what have you the united states is at least the press is much friendlier to russia than it is to britain and france uh, and the ottomans in that conflict Uh, and i think the russian government was uh, appreciative of that sort of sympathy that was expressed by americans uh, or at least by american media 
Um, you know, and during the Civil War, and, and again, there's some debate. Sorry, before you go to the Civil yeah. War, though, David, why do you think that was? Was it simply was a kind of residual anti-Britishness on the behalf of the Americans? That, that's my clearest. That's the way it makes sense to me. I, I'm not sure I fully understand the the global. I'm not sure I fully understand the Crimean War. Actually, no, I don't. Understand. I mean, you're only 35 but, years yeah, after the War of 1812. So I think there is a an animosity with the British that that is still, you know, at play there, and obviously the you know, the relationship between the United States and Britain during the Civil War is. Uh, complicated and fraught in, in, in a variety of ways. Um, but, you know, in some ways, the Crimean War is one of the things that actually led to the United States uh, purchasing Alaska from Russia. Yeah, so obviously that's what most of our listeners, if they know one thing about 19th century Russian-American relations, they'll know about Seward's folly and the purchase of Alaska. So yeah. take it away. Okay, okay, so... so or do you talk about the Civil War first? Well, the, 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 let's, let's, let's talk about Alaska, because I think that's, that's, the, that's the main story. Uh, so, you know, Russia had been colonizing, uh, to some degree, Alaska for a very long time, uh, by the, by the mid-19th century. But very few Russians actually wanted to go to Alaska, because as cold as Russia is, Alaska is, is, is both cold and far away from civilization. And so, the, you know, the Russian... Or civilization as Russia is defined. defined it. Yes, 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 uh, to be sure. Uh, so there were scattered Russian settlements, but they are uh, Russian Orthodox uh, priests and a couple of fur traders, and that's about it. We're literally talking a few hundred people over all of Alaska, which population density is, is uh, you know, not very many. Uh, and basically, right after the Crimean War, Russia decides, like, this, this isn't in our best interest. We, we should sell it and get rid of it. There's a couple reasons for it. One is is the the financial losses from the Crimean War. They recognized that the small Russian population in Alaska was very vulnerable. They were worried about what would happen if Britain wanted Alaska, because obviously British Canada could very easily walk into Russian Alaska and take it over, and there's not much they could do to defend it, especially given the recent war they had just had with Britain. And the third problem the main thing they were getting out of Alaska were otters, and the sea otter population had declined significantly, and so there were no more otters to kill, uh, or at least very few, and so they decided to sell it to the United States. And part of the reason why they wanted to sell it to the United States was they figured, if we're not going to have it, we don't want Britain to have it, so we're going to sell it to not Britain, which in their mind was the United States. And they sold it for $7.2 million, so uh, not very much money. And there's this myth that this was an unpopular, you know, you mentioned Seward's Folly, which is sort of the, the thing that you teach people in high school. It's like, oh, this, this mistake. Actually, if you look at most coverage of the purchase of Alaska, most Americans actually seem to be in favor of it. It seemed like a good deal. Um, and there were precedents for this for the, the century. To, to be short, the United States has been purchasing, you know, obviously, you know, Louisiana and, and other territories. Uh, but uh, most Americans seemed in favor of it. It was just a handful of, of, of those that were critical of Seward for other reasons politically that, that decided to label Seward's folly on him. Right, okay, I was going to ask you where the Seward's folly comes from. Is that contemporary, though? Yeah, so, that, is, so. that is contemporary, but, it, but it's, it's, not, well, it's, it's not widespread. It's not widespread, and, well, it's not, it, it wasn't the dominant interpretation, you know, and... Given the how contentious actually American politics were in eighteen sixty seven, and and it's a very contentious moment in time, this was actually something of a 
relatively speaking, unifying factor. People seem to be in favor of purchasing Alaska. You know, the, the tensions that existed within the federal government between Republicans and, and the Andrew Johnson administration, those were very profound in 1867. Alaska, purchasing Alaska seemed actually to be a, one of the ways to sort of reconcile those two and get uh, something done. So it was actually a, a very uh, popular purchase. And the Russian population, the little bit that was there, pretty much all packed up and left almost almost immediately. So right, okay. Can, can we back up slightly? Yes, uh, because I, that that's fascinating, and I'm quite sure. I mean, this goes to the geo, um, the geopolitics of this. Mm. It perfectly makes sense that if Russia isn't going to have this, it doesn't want Britain to have it. Yeah, um, and it makes more sense for Britain, frankly, to acquire it than the United States. I mean, it's slightly surprised that Britain didn't make a bigger play for it. However. What did, speaking of Britain and the United States and Russia and the United States, what was Russia's position during the Civil War? Ah, uh, so most of the world sort of adopted this stance of neutrality. So that's what sort of Britain did, say we're not going to get involved. You know, there were various factors within Britain, similar kinds of things going on in France. Russia, relatively speaking, was more vocal about support for the Union. Um, and so there are... Uh, Russian fleets that, that station themselves uh, um, in such a way and to 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 support the Union blockade. Um, how important that was in terms of, of actually manning the blockade is, is pretty minimal, but as a symbolic gesture, um, you know, Russian fleets had been sailing into American ports for a very long time at that, that point. Um, and uh, Russia seemed to be more vocal for support for the Union than uh, most of Europe was. Uh, so, um, you know, when Twain thanks Russia for, for, for supporting the Union during the Civil War, it wasn't very much support, but it was, you know, uh, more than everyone else, which doesn't say very much. Right. And in some of the reading I did mm. for, for this, I, I, uh, I saw a reference that basically the United States or, or uh, bigged up what Russia did. Or, oh, know, to be sure. Amplified it in part to just keep them out. And, and so they gave them perhaps more credit than they deserve, but uh, wanted to create the impression globally, if only to, uh, to forestall Britain, yes. keep Britain on side to make it clear that Russia was kind of on their side, which again goes to the importance of Russia as a kind of strategic power in the 19th century, well before um, the, the Soviet Union. It's interesting to me that all of this suggests that... Russia and the United States, based on this prehistory, which is fascinating, and there's lots of interesting characters mm. involved in it, but, but they weren't adversaries at this point. They don't become adversaries till later, and when they become adversaries, they're going to become obviously very serious yes. adversaries, or, or the successor to Russia, the, the Soviet Union, and then the Soviet Union will collapse and be succeeded by Russia again. Uh, but but the kind of this doesn't feel inevitable. You know, if you, if you were um, if you were in the United States in 1867, after the purchase of Alaska, and you said to somebody, well, a hundred years from now, guess who's going to have the weapons to destroy the United States and be our greatest enemy? If you were able to say that to somebody in 1867, I don't think they would have predicted Russia. No. They probably would have said Britain. They would have said Britain, yes. Undoubtedly would have said Britain. Um, so it is interesting that this... There's the conflict between the two that we that characterizes 
much of the 20th century hmm. wasn't inevitable. No, I don't think it was inevitable. Or it doesn't, doesn't appear to be inevitable by looking at this early yeah. history. Yeah, I mean, now, now you do see at the end of the 19th century a sort of a shift in American attitudes towards Russia. You know, and I think this happens for, for, for a number of reasons, but probably the most significant is you have the immigration of more than 3 million people from Russia in the final two decades of the 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th century. And from the Russian Empire. From the Russian Empire. Um, and this is a product of, of Russian pogroms, Russian sort of seizures of, of uh, and exp expulsions of people they saw as being not fully Russian or not Russian in the way they wanted them to be. So we're talking a large number of uh, Russian Jewish population, a large number of Polish immigrants, uh, Germans from Russia, um, being forced to leave Russia for uh, on one grounds or another, uh, and immigrating to the United States in in huge numbers, and I think that really reshaped American attitudes towards Russia because they hear these accounts of of Russian violence and Russian uh, displacements happening, and, and I think that does definitely you know we're thinking about Twain's quote about killing the Russian royal family, I think that's shaped in part by the kind of um, behavior of the Russian royal family, among other things, uh, and the immigration of so many um, people from Russia in the end of the 19th century. That's right. By the time Quain, Twain says that in 1905, Twain is, of course, becomes an outspoken anti-imperialist late in life, late mm. in his own life. Uh, he's critical of the United States and the Philippines at this very time. Uh, but he's, he's, I think that does uh, animate his comments when it comes to, to Russia as well. So there's a great deal of sympathy well, there's some sympathy for these immigrants as, as, as victims of, of political violence and persecution. There's also antipathy, but oh, be anti Semitism and anti Catholicism and all kinds of things as well, um, where the Poles are concerned. Uh, so the attitudes are mixed. But a lot of these new immigrants who are seen as alien and like all the rhetoric we hear from xenophobes in the United States, none of its ending is new. Mm. And so what we hear in, in those first decades of the, of the 20th century are these people are alien, they can't be assimilated, they're too different from us, their ways, etc., etc. Um, and a lot of that is directed at these immigrants as well, but they're also associated with political radicalism in I'm many sure. cases. In part because they were political, many were, not all of them, they were talking about three million people, but many, there were radicals amongst them. And the radical movement in Russia, because the Russian Revolution was a long uh, movement that uh, occurred over their deep fits and starts, yeah, yeah. you, know, um, you know, there's a there's an abortive revolution in 1905 uh, and so on. Um, and so when the Bolshevik Revolution occurs in 1917, uh, we see the first Red Scare in American history, and there's a backlash against a lot of these immigrants. And one of the reasons that we see immigration restriction, or a major reason we see immigration restriction in the, in the 1920s, is xenophobia, but it's xenophobia combined with um, anxiety about political radicalism among these immigrants, particularly from, not only from Russia but, and the Russian Empire, but particularly from Russia and the Russian Empire. Fair? Oh, to be sure, yes. Okay, now, now we don't have time to talk about the, the Cold War, but I, I'm, I imagine listeners are, are can, can sort of rattle through through the major events of the Cold War and how that shaped American attitudes towards Russia and Russian attitudes towards America. 
Let's talk about what happens at the end of the Cold War. I yeah, think before, sorry, can we back up just one yes, other thing yes. I want to tell people, which is one of the most amazing things I encountered, which I just didn't know about, and somebody should make a Netflix series about this. Netflix, is, if you're listening. Yeah. Okay, good. Here's or, the pitch. Or, yeah, so William Jennings Bryan, who's a huge political figure in yes. the United States at the turn of the 20th century, serves as, he's a presidential candidate, he uh, serves as Secretary of State. He, he's, a, he's a major figure. I, mean, I don't even know he'd be equivalent to him today. Bernie Sanders? Not in his politics, but in terms of his... Oh, his, uh, yeah. His I would status. say Brian's even bigger than, than Bernie Sanders. Yeah, right? I mean, but in terms of his status. Yes, I mean, yes. he's... He, William Jennings Bryan visited Russia in 1904 and went to see Tolstoy. Okay, I can see was, him getting along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and yeah, well, highly moral figures, and, and so and he was a great admirer. And Brian, because he, he was a, he'd recently been a presidential candidate, was meant to see the czar, and he sent a message to the czar saying, "I'm going to be late. I'll get there in a few days." Nicholas II was not used to being kept waiting. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> uh, and he did this because Brian was such an admirer of Tolstoy, but Tolstoy was also an admirer of the United States. So in his library and, and in his writings, we know that Tolstoy read Benjamin Franklin, Thoreau, William Lloyd Garrison, Theodore Parker, Emerson, Whitman. He read Henry George's Progress in Poverty. In Anna Karenina, there's a quote, there's a shout out to Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> okay, Levin says in that. Anna Karenina, I'm sure Benjamin Franklin felt just as worthless and had the same distrust of himself as I, when he summed himself up. It's a weird line, but it's a, it's a there's a shout out to Benjamin Franklin, Franklin. and Anna Karenina. So there's a kind of, um, Tolstoy, of course, is a major figure in moral literature, but there's a real affinity at one point between Tolstoy and the United States and Americans and Tolstoy in this earlier period. A lot of that goes away during the Soviet, during the during the uh, Cold War. Not entirely, because Tolstoy remains part of the Canada. I'm gonna have to go reread the Cross of Gold speech now and see if I hear Tolstoy in it. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, so sorry. Before we move on to that, so I, we, I do. I know we don't need to move on, but I, I didn't. I think William Jennings Bryan's trip to Russia is is. Something. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what it I'm is. Not but sure, it's I'm not sure about the Netflix series, but okay. I think it'll be. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I might have exaggerated. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> well, you got you, 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 for for the right audience, man. I was very excited. I, 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 we get excited about interesting things, <laughs> yeah. right? So obviously, the the Cold War shapes, and even before the the Cold War, immediately after the Russian Revolution, there's an animosity between the United States and and and, and the Soviet Union. No, and Russia. Yeah, it's Soviet Union sorry. throughout the 20th century. Or throughout the sort of not always because they allied during the Second World War. to be sure obviously okay but but there's at least a, a unfriendly relationship except when there's a friendly relationship by by means of a common uh, adversary and obviously that shaped both of our childhoods it shaped much of of of, of that entire century we I think most people expected that when the Soviet Union fell apart that that, that there was a potential for a different kind of relationship. To what extent did that happen, or did that not happen? It was the end of history, David. I guess I read Francis that book. Fukuyama told us, and liberal democracy was going to triumph, and no two countries that had McDonald's had ever fought each other. And it was. I read that book great. too. Okay, it was all going to be great, and we got a peace dividend. Yeah. During the nineties, and to some extent, for a brief period of time, it worked. 
Um, again, I think the first George Bush, who's written, who 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 wrote about this in his memoir, um, "A World Transformed," um, with Brent Scowcroft, Brent Scowcroft, wrote about this. You know, managed the the transition, the end of the Soviet Union, pretty well from the American standpoint. Uh, there was a bromance between Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton, who both had certain sort of qualities in common. They were sort of larger-than-life figures with, shall we say, robust appetites. <laughs> um, and, yes. and for a time in the 1990s, it seemed like there was going to be a convergence. And there were pretty good relations, at least at the senior level, between the two countries. I think Russia's transition to liberal capitalism was a little bit uneven. And the United States, perhaps in, a, in a kind of in the hubris of the end of the Cold War and being, a, you know, that was the time it was a global hegemon that stood alone, mm-hmm. um, pursued the expansion of NATO, for example, um, despite some early promises that it wouldn't do so, and then having negotiated with Russia that it, Russia actually agreed for a time that it was okay. Anyway, the United States pursued a foreign policy that was, again, I think hubristic is, is the right word, and that wasn't the only thing that set the stage for what happened with Russian relations, because of course, in both countries, domestic uh, factors help condition what ha- what happens in terms of foreign policy. But there was a turn after, after you know, basically Yeltsin was overthrown by by Vladimir Putin, and apart from the occasional um, placeholder, Putin's been in power ever since, and P- Putin, who's a former. Uh, he is a man from the deep state. He's a former KGB officer, um, has pursued a very different and antipathetic foreign policy and policy towards the United States and its allies and been pretty effective at it. Not always. Yeah. But I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me about <coughs> excuse me, Putin is he has said repeatedly that the great tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, there's lots of great tragedies in the 20th century to, to choose from, but if that's the one you see as being the, the, the greatest strategy, then I think that sort of speaks to, to, to the choices he's made in, in the intervening... Well, he's a Russian nationalist, choice. though, Dave. I mean, you know, he grew up in the... after. You know, he was born after the Second World War. Oh, to be sure. You know, I mean, it... Imagine... But there were also Russian nationalists who said, like, look, we can have a, a, a post-Soviet Russia that is not necessarily, a, you know, a, an imperial power. Sure, but remember, he was a servant of that former regime and of that state and saw it overthrown and, as he saw it, humiliated. Yeah. And I think that has shaped his worldview. And I'm not doing this by way of defending or apologizing mm-hmm. for Vladimir Putin. It's, a, it's an effort to understand. Then we had the rise of oligarchs and a kind of lawless... There was a kind of kleptocracy for a time in Russia and possibly still is. I don't have the expertise to really comment on that. Um you know, so the, the, there are a number of factors that explain Putinism, but I think I think for him, the fall of the Soviet Union was was a tragedy. So, is the way to think about where we are now is are we still basically in the Cold War and we got a ten year vacation from it in the nineties, or is this in a different thing entirely? I think, and again, we're 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 straying far from our area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like the nineteenth century, where you have great powers squaring off against each other. Because, of course, the United States is not in the position of strength it was in 1990, relatively speaking, globally. I mean, it's still 
very, very powerful, of course. But where we have great powers butting up against each other mm. and occasionally coming into conflict. The danger is, although peace was maintained, was mainly maintained for most of the 19th century between the great powers, wasn't entirely maintained. No. I mean, you talked about the Crimean War, and it was often around the peripheries where powers came, came into conflict with each other that conflict could arise. And the same and, is true in the 20th century. And the same is true in the 20th century. But, but so, so, so in other words, I don't think it's the Cold War redux. I think if we're in Cold War II, that's probably the Sino-American relationship, which we'll probably return to. Um, and this is a distraction from that. I'm sure people in Washington feel that way. It's not a distraction to Vladimir Putin. Um, but I, so, so I think it's more akin to those sort of great power struggles that we saw before the Cold War. Also, unlike the Cold War, there's not an ideological dimension to this really mm. in the same way. I mean, I, don't, I, I think what we see is really versions of nationalism and national interest coming into conflict. So I don't think it's... I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, so there's there's the debate, and I think it's a debate that was present during the Cold War about the extent to which whether the tensions were primarily driven by ideology or primarily driven by power. You know, and in George Cannon's long telegram from uh, 1946, you know, he, he, he says, like, look, the Soviet Union is partially driven by ideology, but it's also driven by, um, a, he says, a traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity that, you know, in Kennan's mind, this is partially about Leninism, but it's also partially about sort of a, 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 a something he saw as being in, in my much deeper roots in the Russian character. And he says that uh, uh, he's, he sees the Russia at the, at the core of Russians or the Soviet Union's worldview, according to Kennan, there was a, a need for dictatorship to oppose the threats from the outside, you know. And so the the Soviet Union was was an authoritarian government, in his mind, not that much unlike the Tsar, not much unlike Putin, um, in terms of needing the outside threats to, to legitimize inside tyranny. Um, so I mean, I I don't. I, th I think in Putin's mind, I think we're still in the same place we were in some ways in 1980. You know, there's, there's a, this is about defending Russian national interests by, by pushing up against the other great powers. Yeah, well, I agree with you on that. Yeah. But I also think there's an element of... Um, it's not quite the fig leaf, you know, there's not the fig leaf of communism that way that, that, that's the way McKinnon... Uh, uh, Cannon described it in the long telegram. But, but let's not forget how um, large the Russian Empire was, and then the Soviet Union after it, and Russia, relative to that, Russia is still the largest country on earth by, mm. by an order of magnitude, but it's diminished, especially in areas that historically and culturally some Russian nationalists see as inherently Russian, like Ukraine mm. and Belarusian, things like this. And, 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 I think that animates Putin's thinking. I don't think it animates all... You know, one thing to bear in mind is we don't know what Russians think about this. To be sure. And the build-up and whether there's any real thirst for conflict in Ukraine um, on behalf of, of regular people in Russia. Um, and so we have to distinguish between Putinism and Putin's mm. thinking on all this. And Putin matters, obviously. And what other Russians think. Um, 
and we, we simply don't know that as yet or are not we're not equipped to deal uh, to, to assess that but I think that kind of notion that Russia has lost something mm-hmm. compared to where it was either a century ago or even 50 years ago during the Soviet during Soviet times um, is certainly animates Putin's thinking to be I sure think there's no I there's think that's right. no doubt about that I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know whether they're bluffing. I, well, I, we're not, and by we I mean NATO, are not going to go to war mm. for Ukraine. I how, just don't believe they will. How does this compare to the, some people have compared to the Cuban Missile Crisis. How do you think this compares? I don't think it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis because I don't think it represents an existential threat to Russia or the United States. Now, I think there is a danger here because once conflicts start, you never know where they're going to go. Mm. And I said with some confidence, I don't think NATO's going to war with Ukraine, for Ukraine. I could be wrong about that. And let's not forget both the United States and Russia are still nuclear powers. Yes. And the other countries that are involved in this, Britain, France, etc., are nuclear powers. And that danger hasn't entirely receded. The Cuban, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, though, the, we were close to actually having a, an exchange of nuclear weapons. Yes. That's not, doesn't seem to be, thankfully, on the cards here. What seems more likely is Russia might invade Ukraine and then there's going to be a crisis. NATO's going to be faced with a question of what to do about that. Um, Russia's going to be faced with a challenge as to what to actually do as well. Yes. In the sense that, uh, you know, as the United States learned in Iraq not that long ago, invading a country is one thing. Staying there is another, and it can be quite bloody and, and costly. And, the, you know, the Russians have this experience in Chechnya as well, more recently, um, in their own history, rather. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't, it doesn't, I don't think it's like the nuclear, uh, sorry, the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It doesn't feel, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was a direct confrontation between Russia and the United, or the Soviet Union and the United States over nuclear weapons. This seems to be more Russia pursue if Russia indeed invades pursuing its what it d- defines as its interests, and the United States and its allies, NATO allies, having to decide how to respond to that. Mm. They're not going to respond with nuclear weapons. Ooh. Yeah, the, the 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 one I think you're right. The one place where I think it's similar is there's a similar. I think there's a a, a kind of a chess going on. In both DC and in and in and in Russia, about sort of okay, if Russia does invades Ukraine, how will the United States respond, and then how will Russia respond to how the United States responds, and what's what's the fifth move or sixth move down the line from that, and to what extent can you anticipate subsequent actions? That's right. That's right. And what's interesting is, although the United States and Britain are sending what is being euphemistically called lethal aid. Yeah, that's um, a good euphemism. Weapons to, to Ukraine and will do what they can to bolster Ukraine's defense defenses. Uh, the likelihood in the event of an invasion is that there'll be sanctions, there'll be continued support for Ukraine's military resistance. But what we're seeing is the United States and its NATO allies are bolstering other NATO allies. So the Baltic mm. states, there's talk about Sweden and Finland giving up the neutrality and possibly applying for membership of NATO. These are the moves that seem more likely rather than NATO going to war with Russia over Ukraine. I don't think that's likely. But again, uh, well, what, we, do, we, what we, do we know? We will see. And now, let's hope there's no invasion. To be sure. 
Time for last drops. Let's, let's see. Right. We will see what happens in, in Ukraine over time. But let's, yes. let's see what happens. Um, yeah, I want to uh, uh, note the sad passing of Richard Dunn, Richard S. Dunn, who is a very, very eminent historian of the colonial Caribbean. He wrote a very famous book called um, uh, Sugar and Slaves, which you probably read in graduate oh, school. I read it in read, graduate yeah. school. I didn't know Dunn. I didn't know I have either. to confess, but... Everyone I know who knows Don, and I know many people who did. He he was made, he was a he was a fixture in Philadelphia in the McNeil Center for Early American History uh, there at Penn. Everybody, and this wasn't this just hasn't come out since his death yesterday. But everybody in the entire time I've been an active professional historian for the better part of three decades loved Richard and Mary Maples Dunn, hmm. his wife. They were both historians. They were. By all accounts, just lovely people, and he was uh, he was ninety three years old, uh, and he died yesterday. But but people really, um, everybody just speaks so lovingly and so respectfully and highly of him. I just wanted to you know, note his passing. Yeah, that a life well lived. Yeah, and, indeed, uh, an excellent scholar. Yeah, what about you, David? Uh, well, so yesterday was uh, was 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 Burns uh, night, and, and I want to something I found out yesterday that I think is just very cool. Um, there is, of course, the, the Burns birthplace here in Scotland that one can come visit if one wants to really sort of commune with the bard and, I don't know, whatever it is one does at one's birthplace. But I found out yesterday there is a replica of the Burns birthplace in Atlanta. Okay, why? It was founded by the, the Burns Club of Atlanta uh, and built uh, in about 100 years ago because they wanted a place where they could commune with the bard without... Traveling to Scotland to do it. Well, I, I will say, although I don't particularly care for Burns's poetry myself, as I've made clear at the beginning of this episode, um, I am fascinated by the kind of cult of Burns around the world, and one does encounter this around the world. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Lincoln, since he came up, really, he was a, a fan of Burns, yeah. and uh, you know, so if you if you are in the Atlanta area, I think it's it's can, a pro- can one still visit it? It's well, the house is still there. It is is. Still privately run by the. I assume last night they had a good party, um, but it's uh, it's uh, on the National Register of Historic Places. But I think it's still in private hands. Um, but the, so there is a replica. I think you can drive by and say, "Oh, look, I'm in Scotland." Except I'm in suburban Atlanta. Okay. So, well, right, David, to to the memory of Burns. Yeah, to be sure. <laughs> Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.